Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome. My name is Royful Brown and this is Mid-Atlantic, the show we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is because I fell in love with the idea of American politics way back in the mid-90s. And then that interest in American politics and American culture was rekindled in 2008 when one Barack Obama became uh, the President of the United States. It wasn't until 2014 that I visited America, not for the uh, first, second, but actually for the fourth time and actually spent a week in San Francisco. And I utterly fell in love with uh, the beauty of this city, the majestic views that overlook the bay, but also with the friendliness of people. I came to San Francisco not knowing anybody And uh, a week later, I had three lifelong friends, friends who are still friends, uh, still who I can call friends today. And I can still um, go out and have drinks, have meals uh, with them and actually traveled with them. Such is the friendliness and the openness uh, of Californians. But San Francisco, for all of its beauty and its can-do spirit, does come with some problems. San Francisco, California, home to the Golden Gate Bridge, Full House, Alcatraz, Fuller House, and runaway gentrification. Since the 1990s, Silicon Valley has boomed, and many of the tech workers live here in San Francisco. Since that time, housing prices have skyrocketed, forcing many longtime residents to leave their neighborhoods. Many of these residents blame tech workers for their problems, but are they really to blame or are they just convenient scapegoats? So what is gentrification exactly? Gentrification occurs when capital and higher income, higher educated people move into working class neighborhoods. It's pretty safe to say that this is occurring here in San Francisco. Gentrification has already transformed about 10% of neighborhoods across the entire Bay Area. Gentrification can lead to displacement. Displacement occurs when people are forced to move, either because of their housing conditions or their neighborhood conditions. An influx of higher income residents can encourage property owners and landlords to increase rents and home sale prices. They do this because new residents can and will pay higher prices than longtime residents. This can lead to displacement. Displacement is occurring in nearly half of Bay Area neighborhoods. The median home value in the Bay Area has increased 168% between 1996 and 2016, the highest rate of anywhere in the United States. Researchers have metrics for measuring gentrification and displacement, and those metrics tell a clear story in The Mission, a neighborhood in San Francisco. The neighborhood is dense, walkable, and well-served by transit. In other words, very attractive to the young people who work at tech companies. The mission has historically been the center of the city's Latino community, and the influx of young, mostly white tech workers has eroded some of the character and community of the neighborhood. The mission is filled with colorful murals, but the artists can't afford to live here anymore. One-bedroom apartments in the neighborhood go for about $3,800 per month. 
Last week, San Francisco made the national news in the United States. In terms of media chatter, there was an article written by Nellie Bowles, who basically said that San Francisco has become a failed city, and it seemed to have chimed with, with many people. Some, some people from San Francisco were upset by the article. Some nodded in sage agreement. On stage, we have um, some good friends of mine. All of them are friends, actually. We have Kristen Brett, who's a teacher in the San Francisco Bay Area, because we do want to look at how the school board, how the school system uh, is doing in San Francisco and some of the challenges. We have Rodrigo, uh, and Rodrigo actually gave me the link to the article and said, "Should we, can you talk about this on Mid-Atlantic? Name of my good friend Aaron Fisher also who is who's a bay area native and basically used to live in san francisco though now he's moved to the east bay rodrigo let's start with you why did you send me the article how long have you lived in san francisco and did the article chime with you three questions all in one thanks for having me here i've been a fan of mid-atlantic for as long as long as i've been on clubhouse and now is my time to shine i suppose but on the terrible topic right this is a very sad situation. I've been here for 15 plus years as both uh, a tech worker, but also Latino for whatever that's worth. And what I have seen is a, a deterioration of a number of different issues, most notably that of the homelessness crisis and the livability crisis, I suppose, for anybody who's on the edge of society. And a remarkable confusion, at least on my part, in that whereas there's no real party politics and that the Democrats dominate the government, there and there's plenty of funds with which they could implement whatever policies they came up with, the problem only seems to worsen. Uh, this all came to a head with uh, the recall of the district attorney, Chase Abudin, after basically his being blamed uh, before the end of his term for much of what's going on. There are many details that could give color to what the experience has been like. Maybe I'll save that for later. But yes, I think the article did resonate with me and that I came in loving the city, loving everything that it represented. And I've seen that mostly erode. I'm not really sure what to be done, what's to be done about it. Aram, you were born in the East Bay when I met you a couple of years ago. You were living in San Francisco. Tell us about growing up in the East Bay and your impressions of San Francisco from the East Bay. Yeah, technically born in New York, but grew up in the East Bay from the time I was one. Um, San Francisco is always, you know, the, the large city in the area and went there all the time. I also lived in the city for eight years until until August. So it's a place I'm very familiar with. It's where I went out when I was young. Lots of friends and, and family and so on and so forth are, are either from there, live there currently or lived there in the past. And the Bay Area is a very different place. And I was born in the early 80s. So we're talking 80s, 90s and onwards. Very, very different place before the tech booms, obviously. San Francisco, I think, is best understood as a city of movements. There was, you know, from the gold rush and the silver rush all the way onto tech. There's been a series of things that have really shaped the city. And uh, the latest one, unfortunately, is one that I really don't like. Although I would much more lay the blame at uh, the feet of tech money and how this sort of greed has reshaped the city, both in terms of what's been invested in and not been invested in. And uh, I really believe that's where the, the housing crisis has come from. Um, in addition to really a crisis of community that's been shaped by some of the factors that have shaped other cities in the country, thinking of things like urban renewal, the destruction of neighborhoods, particularly historically black neighborhoods in the city, that has really changed the city, I think, for the worse. It's actually really sapped the spirit which um, I loved growing up, which was a spirit of activism, come as you are, whoever you are, right? Famously, San Francisco's home to the Castro, and uh, you know, queer culture has always been really central to, to San Francisco. Alternative cultures of various kinds. I imagine we're one of the only places on earth with an S&M street fair, for example, certainly things extreme like that, and then other far more wholesome things like hippie circuses and all kinds of other things that made the city delightfully and uh, very diverse. Not always perfect in all kinds of ways. The city's always had a set of problems. But in terms of the things that we're talking about today, I think it's really a story of people with lots of money seizing control and, and doing things like creating massive incentives for tech companies to create jobs while doing virtually nothing to create housing or address historic inequities and things like that. That is a great jumping off point for us to roll out one of the first stats. And the region, so the Bay Area, which is home to some 10 million people, has a medium household income 
of $113,000, which is 33,000 higher than the median in California alone and 47 thousand dollars higher than the average in the US and that's as of 2019 but one in four Bay Area families aren't making enough to live on. Kristen I know you don't actually teach in San Francisco but you teach in in the East Bay but you're very aware of the San Francisco school board. Can you tell us some of the pressures uh, that teachers see because of this wild disparity of income? First of all thank you for um, allow me on your program. This is a real treat. I think specifically for teachers, I'll speak to us as a, an occupation. It's really challenging to live here as workers. And so to be in the area that, you know, home values are 113000 is really kind of almost unlivable for many of us. I'm a single mother of two children, and I am really only living here because I can live with my brother and serve a place that I, I've grown to love. I've been here for over 20 years and this is my home now. I think in terms of the immense wealth inequality, you really get a good idea of what it feels like when you enter a school classroom. Teachers are required to accept and love everyone who enters our spaces and, and we see it through the lives of children and through the lives of their families. I think with regard to what's happening in San Francisco and specifically with the school board, I think what happens is that people grab onto an ideology and hold on to that and often lose sight of what's really important. And that's of serving people and serving community. And I feel like San Francisco has failed in that area. Roger, you, like Aaron, grew up in the East Bay. And I know when we were talking earlier, you, you really gave a, a beautiful description of San Francisco being the exciting, beautiful city across the Bay. As somebody who grew up on the East Bay, looking to San Francisco as this great kind of wonderland, when did you start to notice a change that the city wasn't all it cracked up to be or what it used to be? I think, sadly, it, it, you know, I was part of that influx when I got into tech and the Silicon Valley jobs started moving into San Francisco. The culture of San Francisco shifted was the first thing that I noticed. It went from the place that people in the East Bay would make the, the trip over the bridge or through the tunnel on the on the, the BART train into the city for entertainment. There was live music everywhere. Any kind of music you could imagine. It was beautiful. The the culture, the food, every everything was so great about the city. And it, it seemed like when the businesses started moving there, it was right around the time I would say late 90s when I first started working in San Francisco that I started noticing like, well, hey, I'm off work. The city's supposed to be fun. Let's go get into some of that fun that I remember. And it had just changed that the, the tech companies brought in a different culture that, you know, it, yeah, they went to restaurants and yeah, they went they, they went out to bars, but it wasn't the same and they didn't have the same um I don't know, desire to have quirkiness that the city provided. And it just became very watered down and everything became the same. But I think the problems that you're speaking to around you know, looking at the homelessness problem and, and the crime issues, the best that I can tell is that it, it, it really comes down to zoning laws. And zoning laws are a product of you know, politicians passing passing bad zoning laws, as well as the population that that filled the city wanting to you know to to back up growth of the city in terms of economic growth, as well as you know zoning homes for family housing. And there was really no no push inside San Francisco to really accommodate housing wise. And so I know a lot of people that that are still in the Bay Area that they have jobs, they have good jobs. And they they are not necessarily homeless, but they certainly couldn't afford to live in a single family dwelling, which is what San Francisco you know builds and zones for. But everybody now is like renting rooms, and some of the things that they call rooms are just closets. And so there's something economically that's just broken and not working there. But but I, I think I noticed the problems starting with just how the culture fell apart in San Francisco, and it's really sad. That kind of d does massively chime with me. Uh, when, when I first got to the city in 2015, when I moved into the mission, I remember going to a rather nice dinner party and I was sat next to somebody who 
was a teacher, but also a union rep. And he told me that he lived in his car for 18 months in the early 2010s whilst being a teacher on a full salary and actually a union rep. And I, and I was just utterly flabbergasted uh, that somebody who has a professional qualification could find themselves in, in such a situation. But it also reinforced to me the difference in culture between uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. Like nobody in the United Kingdom would even sleep in the car for one night. It's just something you just would not do. Whereas if you are going to be temporarily homeless, of all the places on planet Earth, maybe, maybe because of the benign weather, also because of liberal attitudes, San Francisco is the place. Northern California is the place when, where you, you can afford to do that without it becoming too injurious to, to your health. Though obviously over time, it absolutely will, will do. But I, I just couldn't believe what I heard that a teacher slept in the car for 18 months. He even told me he managed to date during that time at all, which told me that there is a very different culture between the country where I grew up and, and my adopted home. But to, to your point, Roger, the Council of Economic Advisors in 2019 said that if there was a deregulation of housing markets in San Francisco alone, they reckon that eliminate 54% of homelessness within the city. And, and basically what we have there is nimbyism, isn't it? It's a case of not in my backyard because of the restrictive uh, planning laws. Could you s speak to us a little bit more about that? There's, I, I think a lot of neighborhoods suffer this where if you buy a home or if you've lived in a home, whether it's a family home that, that's, that's been in the family for a while, once you see the massive growth and you see it's going up, there seems to be some policies and some economic things that are happening that lead to that. And nobody, nobody wants to see the value of their home go down. And so what you have is you have uh, a small number of people that are really impacting the overall economics of the city, you know, and and I think what we're seeing there's there's a huge gap between those that that have those tech jobs, uh, you know, some of us are blessed to have them, and then those that that are doing anything other than that. And so I, I don't know what the solution is, other than finding finding some sensible policies that address the housing needs of, of, of everybody within the city. And I don't think that you're going to simply solve it by having the East Bay figure out the housing needs and, and making all of the workers in San Francisco transient. Aaron, could you maybe shine a light on some of the kind of politics of the city? Uh, the mayor, London Breed, is very much come in with a mandate to try and fix San Francisco. And it was kind of interesting do, doing the research. This goes all the way back to even before Willie Brown, who was the mayor in 1996 to 2004. You know, he came in with a mandate to, you know, to clean up San Francisco, to to sort out the homeless problem. And the homeless problem in, in real kind of like numbers really starts in the late 70s and, and the early 80s. But can you give us some kind of sense of current San Francisco politics? around the homeless problem? What is the city trying to do about it? Is it stymied? Can it do anything about it? Yeah, I think we actually got to start earlier than that right field if we're going to understand San Francisco. So the first thing people need to know is that San Francisco is roughly seven by seven in miles. It's called 11 by 11 by kilometers for your international audiences. And so it's small, right? We don't have, we have something like 100 municipalities around the San Francisco Bay Area which all have their own governments. And so the city and county of San Francisco are actually a pretty small piece of the overall, I think it's about 8 million people in the metropolitan area now. San Francisco started out in the northeastern corner of the, the peninsula that, it's, that it sits on. And early on, there was a lot of hate, particularly towards the Chinese-American uh, residents of the city. And based on that, there was a whole slew of zoning laws that were um, put in place that basically tried to limit density. Density was equated with the way, it was essentially equated with Chinatown, right? The way that the, the Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans were living in close proximity to each other, which was often a strategy of defense. And so if you look at that, that sort of northeastern quadrant of the city, you'll see that there's a lot of density. If you look at the other three quadrants of the city, you'll see that there's, there's restrictions on how high people could build. There were what were single family homes throughout most of those parts of the city. Now they've been split into you know sort of flats, if you will. So there might be say three apartments or four apartments to a Victorian, 
but back in the day, these were single family uh, homes and, and through redlining and other, you know, violence, intimidation, non-white people were largely kept out of those neighborhoods, although that sense changed. And so what you created by not having density was extreme underproduction of housing units. And particularly as San Francisco has gotten wealthier and wealthier, and it's pretty much for a very long time in a pretty wealthy city. The San Francisco Bay is such a perfect port. It makes a really big difference to, you know, in terms of shipping, it's it's always been, it's had a lot of advantages and underneath gold and silver and lots of other resources over time. San Francisco has done quite well. So once you skip a few, you know, we've got tech and, you know, sort of starting under Willie Brown in particular, but you know, even more so, so under mayors like Newsom, Ed, Ed Lee, Eddie, Eddie, and and so on, we saw the city get richer and richer and richer, and not come anywhere close to being able to build the number of units that were needed for the city. In addition, you had surrounding municipalities who built huge office parks and almost no housing, because eighty-two percent of the residential land in uh, the Bay Area is actually zoned for single-family homes. And because of that, there was no real ability to grow up. We really just grew out into suburbs that are further and further away from where the jobs are in places like San Francisco and the Silicon Valley and um, some in Oakland as well, right? What we have now is, is a problem that you just can't sort of wave a wand and create space because we just have a lot of water around us. It's hard to you know, deal with the fact that we have a bay and just not a lot of land around it. There's a lot of landfill, which creates problems with like sea level rise into the future. And so there's a bunch of efforts underway to try to figure out, okay, how do we find a way to, to maximize the available land for, for more housing units? And there definitely has been a lot of nimbyism around that. In one part of the city, at, uh, it's Masonic and Geary, there's sort of a perfect location to build, I think they built something like 30 or 40 units there, but it was with so much fighting over this, this location, it was unbelievable. You know, there was lots of room to actually build there. They, I think they were even creating their own parking. So there wasn't even a question of like street parking or something like that in the, the neighborhood. A lot of neighbors really raised a stink about it. And that was a real problem. The other thing that's really important to note is the urban renewal I mentioned before, right, which were these housing policies that happened across the country where the federal government, for some reason, decided that communities, um, particularly black communities, were somehow degenerate and needed to be needed federal intervention. They needed the federal government to come in and somehow make them better. Um, and this happened in the, in the Fillmore, which, was, which used to be known as the, the Harlem of the West. And the Fillmore was absolutely eviscerated by these policies, eviscerated culturally. And it went from being a, a vibrant middle-class black neighborhood into being really crime-ridden, struggling in all kinds of ways. And the residents, uh, a lot of the residents were actually horrified by this. And so they took action to try to prevent that from happening again. And one of the main ways they did that was by creating laws that you could designate things as, as historic buildings. And this is part of what happened with the Tenderloin. So when the, the urban planners came for the Tenderloin, one of the strategies that was used was to designate all of these old hotels and, and other kinds of buildings in the Tenderloin as historic. And so it kind of froze them in place, even though I think it's pretty much a stretch to say that they're historic buildings. And that's where you get what are called the SRO or single room occupancy rooms that Roger was talking about before, where essentially you have a room and then like a shared bathroom and kitchen. And these have become, you know, most of them are very decrepit. It's a really, really low standard. They need a lot of work. And it's led to a lot of the problems that we're seeing today, where the initial regulation was sort of compounded by additional regulation. And it's really created this whole problem. And um, short of like tearing down people's homes and putting up more density, it's very hard to figure out how you would even build the housing. And obviously, there's no appetite for kicking people out of their homes because we just want to build taller buildings in, in that place. And no one's going to volunteer for that. Homelessness in San Francisco is out of control. I would say the majority of people that are homeless are not homeless. They're mentally ill slash drug addicts. This is a question you need to be asking. Why do the police let it go on right in front of them? Is it because of that bill that they passed? It made everything a misdemeanor, even heroin, simple possession of meth and heroin are misdemeanors now. So it's not worth the cop's time. The Supreme Court gave a ruling that the overcrowding in the California prisons was cruel and unusual punishment, and they threatened to cut off the Fed dollar if they didn't do something about it. So that's why they're not arresting everybody anymore. They can't put them all in prison because they got a Supreme Court ruling against them. They called it cruel and unusual punishment, how crowded the prison. Prop 47 
had multiple aspects to it. The goal was to be more helpful to society, helpful to the homeless issue, helpful to the police departments and the court system. But as we saw, that's a total failure at, at this point. Connection between those who are homeless and drug abusers, it has a direct correlation in a sense. These who are homeless and uh, in possession of drugs are not going to be prosecuted and taken out of the homeless realm and thrown into jail as long as what they possess is less than $950. The intention was to help, of course, but what it really wound up doing is it made San Francisco more attractive for those who are both homeless and those who are drug addicts to move here. We're now finding that homelessness is increasing, drug addiction is increasing, and the number of people here the numbers are increasing as well. Rodrigo, has San Francisco's humanitarian spirit contributed to the crisis that it's suffering from now? Humanitarian spirit? Well, there's certainly a progressive spirit, which is that from, out of respect for the autonomy of those who are suffering on the streets and in out of compassion for their vulnerability, I think we're spending extraordinary sums and trying any number of plans in order to attend to their needs. And we do have a humanitarian crisis, perhaps that's also another application of that term that would be appropriate. But I'm not sure how to characterize what is causing it. I really don't know. I can only say it isn't just San Francisco. It's worse than Los Angeles. The numbers I last heard were that we have anywhere from eight to 15,000 on the streets here. Not the Bay Area, just San Francisco. But that in LA, I don't know if it's county or city, we have something like forty to 50,000 people in similar conditions. Granted, it's a larger city, but I don't know. I, I my, my feeling is that the fight is largely about what exactly the problem is, which would direct uh, the actions and response. Is it a housing crisis? Is it a drug abuse crisis? It is, is it a mental health issue? Is it merely inequality? I don't know that there's enough consensus about what the actual problem is that we can deploy our resources to a successful, to a successful program. That's, that's the perspective I have. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic has been running for some eight years. You can find it on any old podcatcher. If you're in the audience and you're new to this room, we record these um, on Clubhouse, but this is a podcast. You can go to any podcast or type in Mid-Atlantic and you'll find a whole back catalogue of eight years worth of content. Normally, what we do is we talk about US or UK politics and we compare and contrast that. Um, but I'm a Brit who spends at least half of my year in the Bay Area. And when I first came to California, I actually lived in uh, San Francisco for some three years and utterly uh, loved the city, but loved it through its warts and all. And the one thing which as a Brit, and I think really as a human being, I couldn't 
turn my gaze gaze from was the level uh, of homelessness. Kristen, can you give us some level of insight into teaching children who are homeless? What are the extra considerations, the extra problems that it goes that, that goes into teaching a child who doesn't have a secure home base? I think when children don't have their basic uh, needs met, their basic human needs met, learning is is nearly impossible. I think the Bay Area in general does attempt to reach out to nonprofits and we create support networks for our families who are homeless or who are currently unhoused. But I think it's it's an immense pressure for children, for families and trauma because school is a, is a place for learning, a place for being in community. And that is the one piece of community they have. But not knowing where you're going to go every day is, is really challenging. And school, especially if you are a part of what's called a Title I school where I've been working at the last decade, we provide meals for families and children often. And we have a robust after-school program, so they also get dinner. So we try the best that we can under the umbrella of education, but the task is, is often daunting. One of the criticisms in Nellie Bowles' articles of the San Francisco School Board was that it very much was in the throes of politically correct notions and phrases. And just in the last three weeks, the school board has dropped the word chief from drug titles. And some parents are saying that it's not focusing in on educating children. Is that a fair accusation to throw at the school board? I think in terms of specifically to what the San Francisco School Board have done in the last two years and the the feedback I received from uh, fellow educators in San Francisco and San Franciscans in general has been that the focus wasn't on families and it wasn't on the needs of children. We're in a, we were and are in a, a pandemic. the The twenty 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 one school year was on distance learning was uh, painful to say the least and. It was felt that the school board wasn't focused on the needs of families and children and instead focused on what many people thought was just kind of response to what we experienced with Trump of making sure that putting, you know, it was more of like a response to symbolic racism, right? Like renaming, having things on uh, board agendas of like renaming schools or making sure, you know, we have a bent that we're looking at ideology and inclusivity, but when you you say things and they don't have feet, it, it doesn't make sense to the people you're serving. And I think that was kind of the downfall specifically. I think, you know, Alison Collins, um, I will personally, I think, did a lovely job of bringing up the myth of meritocracy and what was happening with Lowell High School of having merit-based application process. San Francisco Unified are public schools and Lowell was running itself as a private school, having a ridiculous admissions process where families and children are asked to have principal recommendations, grades, a personal statement. And um, she brought light to that and she experienced a huge backlash. But bottom line is that San Francisco Unified was in violation of ed code. It's in the California ed code. We're, we're a public school system. We do not have merit-based assessment. So in a lot of ways, yeah, was there an ideological bent happening uh, with the school board? Sure. But there's also some real problems of what's happening and making sure that equity is happening in the San Francisco schools. I'm going to start to call people up from the audience in the next five minutes. There's some quick round questions. Back to you, Rodrigo, then Aram, then Raja. Rodrigo, during the pandemic, one in 20 San Franciscans actually left the city. Some of those have returned, but have you noticed that exodus in terms of businesses and in, in terms of neighbourhoods? Does the city feel very different post-COVID? Well, it's actually now starting to return to how it was before the pandemic. But but in the midst of the pandemic, yes, I had many friends and I knew of some businesses that had left town in part because the expense of living here didn't wasn't justified by 
the advantages of living here if everything was shut down, but also because many work environments were becoming remote by nature, and so there was an expectation they might not have to return after it's all over. Now that the the pandemic subsided, and at least in this city, we're not wearing masks and being careful only in certain circumstances, I feel that things are going back. But my friends aren't returning. It still feels as though a fourth of it is, I don't know, not, not exactly closed, but maybe emptied out waiting for something to fill its place. I don't know. I don't know what the character of the city will be like. I don't know who will take responsibility for all of the problems uh, that we now have. I suppose it'll just be long-time residents whose ideas will be heard when Breed makes her selection for the new district attorney and we turn a new corner. But I don't really know. I'm, I'm watching as much as you are. Aaron, one thing we know is definitely not going to happen is that uh, San Francisco is going to uh, vote uh, red anytime soon. This is a staunchly liberal city. Why can we very safely say that, considering that uh, the city is riven with massive wealth inequality, of which the visible manifestation of that is a the tenderloin and and some eight thousand people living in tents underneath freeways why do you think that the politics of the city in terms of the political party it's voting for will not change i think you have to understand what san francisco politics is actually like the fault lines and in San Francisco, no pun intended. First off, there's, I would divide it more or less along people who are more or less progressive and people who are neoliberal. And, you know, sort of best represented by the tech industry for the neoliberal side, you know, thinking of people like Ron Conway, who's a, you know, very famous venture capitalist who essentially is the money behind a lot of the San Francisco politicians of greatest note. And then on the progressive side, and you see this on the on the board of supervisors, by the way, which is the sort of more or less the city council. San Francisco is a bit of an oddity in that it's both a city and a county at once. And then you have a progressive wing, which is very different approaches and, and feelings about how the city should be run. The neoliberal side is very pro-business and has largely controlled the city for a generation, at least. And, um, and through that control, they've, they've really decided what their priorities are. You know, for example, did Twitter really need a massive um, incentive to move into the city? Did we really need Twitter to be in the city? It was a question that, you know, really divided people in San Francisco along those lines. I, you know, it sort of seems to me like the, the best thing to do, at least in that, is if Twitter wants to come to San Francisco because, you know, we've got lots of reasons why a company would want to locate here, then let them pay their way and go ahead and do that. But instead, San Francisco gave them massive incentives and tilted the scale towards the people with the most money. And those people leveraged the fact that they had the most money over and over and over again and continue to do so. And it's been at the expense of, you know, the other residents of the city. I, I have to take a little bit of umbrage with what what Rodrigo said about London listening to the longtime residents of San Francisco. When so many of the longtime residents of San Francisco are, they're gone. Like they're, they're not around because they have been displaced, right? There was one of the clips you played earlier, Roy Felt, where they talked about the murals of the mission and how the artists who painted them can't actually afford to live there anymore. Um, they've been moved progressively further and further away from the, away from San Francisco into first places like Richmond, later Vallejo. Now further out than that, if they're even in the area at all. And so what we actually have now is a city that's quickly moving towards much more of like an Elon Musk style politics, right? A sort of libertarian, I would say right of center approach, really more of a laissez-faire capitalistic mentality overall. That doesn't dominate the city, but it's very much the direction that I think they're moving in. You know, there was a, a famous tech guy who had lived in the city for maybe three years, but he felt that the salary that he received made it, you know, totally reasonable for him to complain about the blighted streets and how, you know, just basically saying the most horrific things about these people who were unhoused living on the street in great need. And that that's how, you know, that's how his worldview was. It was, there definitely was a time in San Francisco where there was far more community, much more of a, a spirit of helping other people. And I'm afraid that spirit of community is, it's really lacking. It's one of the reasons why I moved from San Francisco to Oakland. I went from being in a neighborhood where it was quite warm. People were, were friendly with each other. Not perfect, and, and certainly. And still, uh, you know, there was a bit of the big city coldness, which I found to be pretty common in any large city. But what it's become now is, is a lot of very isolated people who, who don't really have a connection to the place, which is part of why when the pandemic hit, they were perfectly happy to, to go wherever they needed to go and work remotely. 
and they left. And, and frankly, a lot of us who I think care deeply about the culture of San Francisco were kind of hoping that they'd stay away and that the other folks would come back. Roger, just before I ask you a question, if you are in the audience and you'd like to uh, come up on stage, now is the time to, to raise your hand. So, uh, Roger, last question to you before we throw things out to, to people in the audience. San Francisco is unique in terms of it seems to have a, a, a confluence of, of issues at the moment. But is San Francisco really just pointing the way for us in terms of major American cities that there is going to be a, a, a problem with, let's say, its school board? Because on the one hand, there aren't enough kids. It's one thing I didn't actually say is that uh, San Francisco, per head of the population, has the fewest children of all um, American cities. So that puts an extra pressure on the school board. Then before you then factor in the wealth of uh, a lot of the parents, which then can absent their children actually from public schools and put them into, into private, it has a, a homeless problem because of massively spiralling rents and, and mortgages, of which the medium household can't really afford. And, and that's just off the top of my head. Before we talk about crime, before we talk about gentrification, etc., all these things are inextricably linked. But is San Francisco maybe just ahead of the, the bell curve when it comes to how US cities will be looking in, let's say, five to 10 years, unless we get a hold of this multifactorial problem? Yeah, probably, and I don't necessarily know if it's a good thing that that they're the that they're the leader. If we can look at some of the problems that we identify there, if if they are the leader, then we've got big problems. But I I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see this continued bifurcation of you know, are you going to live in a major metropolitan area or are you going to get out? And I think one of the blessings that we saw with the pandemic was companies learning that you can get productivity working remotely, which creates new options. There's a lot of companies where it used to be, hey, let me get my office space down in in San Francisco in the Soma district. This will attract all the all the young, you know, talented people that want to work in San Francisco. And now those same companies are saying, you know what, there's a lot of talented people in Utah. There's a lot of talented uh, people in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And, and, and then once you start branching out in this decentralized way, I, I think what you're going to be able to do is you're, you're going to be able to choose the kind of life that you want to live. For some people, they want big city and the bright lights. For others, they want something a little bit different. And I think the bifurcation is going to provide options. I don't think it has to be an ugly thing, but it's going to, be a, it's going to come with trade-offs. The last thing I would just say is that from Aram's lips to God's ears, that San Francisco is turning more libertarian and embracing uh, laissez-faire capitalism. Let's just hope that that's true. I'll just land there. You, you made me titter What was squeezing that in. Irvin Booker, uh, you've joined us on stage, sir. Uh, what's your point? Hi, Russell. Thank you for inviting me up. I'm a native of Bay Area and I'm from Palo Alto is my home. I've seen San Francisco evolve and devolve and then evolve again over several decades, a lot longer than most of, I think, people on the stage have seen. San Francisco, if people understand it, is a minority-majority city. And the fact that the minorities outnumber American of European descent people that live there, it, it has been for a long time. The politics have always been somewhat liberal and in, inlining. I'm not all in favor of the libertarian point of view, and I don't know if how well it works. It works probably works better now in San Francisco, seeing that high tech has moved in. But you know that started in the late '90s, and that was always an issue, even back then, about property value and what this new form of industry that was moving into the city, how it was going to change it, in what areas it was going to change. Culture-wise, it has lost a lot of that flavor because living in Palo Alto and driving up to San Francisco on the weekends just to go to the restaurants and listen to some good jazz and just hang out was, was a pastime. I think it's lost a lot of that flavor 
and in ambiance. It's really turned to me and to my relatives that are still in the Bay Area, because I'm talking to you right now from, from the UK, is that it's not as inviting as it used to be. So I'm hoping that it doesn't lose all of its character. And as far as answering whether other cities are going to take this model, I don't think so. I think when people thought about California, they always thought that we were ahead of our time anyway. And it was between California and New York. But now you can look at where a lot of the high-tech companies are located. California, Texas, some in, in Nebraska, in the Midwest, and, and also on the East Coast. So I think those cities may be influenced by the type of changes that are going, that are happening in, in San Francisco, not necessarily what's co- not necessarily in the middle of the country. I don't think that's going to change very much. My name is Irvin. Thank you for letting me share. No worries. Uh, th- thank you, Irvin. I might have to slightly correct you on the browning uh, or the brownness uh, of San Francisco, Irvin. The, the high point of African Americans being in San Francisco was the early 1970s, and it was 23%. With the influx of young tech workers, I think now San Francisco is a majority uh, white city. There is a sizable Asian community of that, but there is no doubt. But I actually think uh, that because of black flight and to, to a much lesser percentage, a Latino flight, that San Francisco is now majority white. Just for I, what I, that I, I was, uh, Rafael, I got to just stop and say, white flight and black. What, one yeah. second. I don't mean to contradict you. I, I wasn't just talking about blacks. I was talking about Asian, black, Latino. Mm. And I, I think the last, I just pulled up something on here on Google on population percentages. There were still... Uh, a slightly larger mix of the European. All right. Well, we 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 will see with, with the, the the with the latest census that that comes in. Jay Mack, you've joined us on stage. What is your point? Well, I mean, I'm from San Francisco, and yes, you're absolutely right. The city has completely transformed in my entire time there. I think the biggest transition, actually, which is completely opposite to popular opinion, is Mayor Idli. I think he did a very horrible thing for San Francisco, which caused a lot of the issues that we have today, which is completely opening up everything to tech. It brought a lot of money. It brought a lot of capital into San Francisco and the greater Bay Area, which is why we have the tech boom that we do have today. The problem is there was no guidance. There was no forethought. There was nothing that actually gave any direction on what to do with all the capital that would come into the city. And so it was basically letting the tech companies do whatever the F they want the population boom and the housing issues and the drugs and everything that comes with just bringing a massive amount of people into an area very quickly. Thank you for that perspective, J-Mac. Suzanne N., you've also joined us on stage. I did. So 58 years old, was born in San Francisco, Mount Sinai, I believe. 58 years old, born in San Francisco, Third generation San Franciscan. Have I seen San Francisco undergo a huge dramatic change? Absolutely. I, I'm going to say, honestly, you know, what they did in, in Manhattan is they imposed what's called a millionaire's tax. So, for instance, if you buy a house or a condo or what have you for $1.2 million, you're taxed 1%. And what does that 1% do? It goes to the city so that they can subsidize housing. And honestly, as a buyer of New York, New York real estate, it sucks to have to pay $12,000, for instance, to the city. But at the same time, I kind of felt like it was almost like giving to a nonprofit so that I could hopefully help to keep diversity in the city, to keep lower income in the city, and to really understand that we need to give back to other people. I, like I said, was born in San Francisco, raised on the peninsula. I saw my parents' house go from $70,000 up to over $3 million, currently getting $6,000 a month in rent. Crazy. But because of Prop 13, which I don't know if anybody's familiar with, it's a, in short, it's just a law on the books that said, if you bought a house for $70,000, as long as it doesn't go outside your family, the property tax can only go up, I believe, 1.2 or 1.3% per year. So I still pay my parents' property taxes as if I own the house that's now worth $3 million if I had actually bought it at $70,000 plus 
since 1973, 1.2% of that. So there are certain things that California has done and hasn't done. Do I think that the city has changed dramatically? Yes. I think the tech companies, and I watched, you know, I've watched the tech boom, the, the tech dot bomb. I've watched all of the things, right? Because I've been in Silicon Valley for that long. And I see how the tech companies have changed San Francisco. You know, they have buses that go down to Google. They have buses that go down to Facebook. And during COVID, obviously, those all stopped. And what they're now seeing, for instance, Facebook is saying, hey, we actually want you back on. So those people that are in San Francisco that can afford to pay high rents are still staying there. The real estate hasn't, per se, gone down in value. It's probably not as high as it was pre-COVID, but at the same time, it, it's still really high. And they they have a lack of lower-income housing. And what, what it amounts to is more people on the streets. It's really, really sad, in my opinion. You know, and, and people complain that, you know, there's so much crime. I don't think there's any more crime. But yes, there are more homeless on the streets. So that's my feeling. Is San Francisco a failed city? No, I don't think it's a failed city. Is it sad that the diversity has had to go elsewhere? Yes, absolutely, totally sad. There's a very large Asian population from India, Singapore, Hong Kong, because, you know, Hong Kong has a ton of money and people come and buy second residences, third residence, fourth residence in the Bay Area, San Francisco included. So I think you're still going to have diversity, but it's not the same diversity that we saw in the 70s. You're absolutely right. I'm Susanna and I'm done sharing. Thank you for that, Suzanne. And you've just reminded me of one of the facts which I dug up, which um, had actually passed me by. But I think it was 2019, San Francisco voters overwhelmingly backed a new law that would levy an extra 0.1% tax on companies that pay their chief exec more than 100 times the medium for their workforce. The surcharge increased by 0.1% for each factor of 100 that the CEO is paid above the medium, up to a maximum of 0.6%. So just for example, Tim Cook, chief executive of Apple, was paid $134 million in 2019, more than 2,300 times the firm's medium pay of $57,000. So that's kind of uh, equivalent-ish in terms of um, putting some kind of levy on uh, New York properties that that you mentioned. That's because San Francisco is is so, and the Bay Area is so attractive to to tech companies, which then go to massively distort housing markets as well as many others, but to do with housing, that is one way of taxing those and the city then having extra money then to put into uh, kind of basic services. David, Anne, you, you raised your hand. I'm going to pull you up on stage so you can, you can ask your question. And then I think I'm going to wrap it up because we've gone for one hour and nine minutes. But David, Anne, you have the honor of asking the last question. Oh, I didn't really have a question. I had a comment. Oh, oh well, you know what? Do whatever you want to do, sir, as long as it's uh, on topic. Yeah. Uh, and, and also pro-warriors. <laughs> oh, yes, I, aren't they doing well? Yes, they are. yes, I am a San Franciscan, so yeah. So I just I wish I could have been there earlier, but I was in meetings. Look, I will say it's half and half for San Francisco, right? I feel like there are blind spots that people have on the progressive left side in San Francisco. Very much blind spots, I think, in the Bay Area in general. And those blind spots have been rearing their ugly heads for a while, but now the pandemic and certain other things that have been happening over the last 10 to 15 years have really pushed pushed those blind spots uh, to the forefront. David, you and know so, what? All right, David, yeah. um, all right. Yeah. what are these blind spots? Go through them. One of the blind spots is the lack of belief that there can ever be self-responsibility and self-accountability for individuals, right? right? This blind spot, the idea that everybody is a victim of something and therefore, and therefore every, every way we think about everything has to be seen through the prism of, of a certain kind of victimhood. There can never be any accountability. There can never be any self-responsibility for people. None at all, right? And in this way, what they end up doing is, the, is their ideal solutions. They say, oh, we need more housing. This will solve the problem. I'm not about to say that they, are, that they don't do it because that is true. They don't do it. But then what they do is they warehouse people with drug addiction problems when they do do it. 
in housing and it's the same issues within it. So the, the housing that they're in becomes just a drug den. That's not going to solve the problem, right? When they look at homelessness, they think unless there's like this solution that saves everybody at once, right? Right, right? Then then we can't do it. There's also this belief, particularly from some of the more hippy-dippy types of people from the, from the Bay Area's legacy history, they think that somehow homeless people bring a little bit of character, right? To the, you know, you know, they don't, you know, there's character to the street. I, I, you get a lot of these different things there, right? Another thing is, is that they also believe in, you know, okay, you need to spend more money, right? Spend more money, spend more money. That money is going to be the solution to the problem. San Francisco spends more than 1.2 billion just alone in money toward uh, homelessness. $250 million of that goes toward nonprofits, right? The rest of it is spent by the city. And yet with all that money, it takes you 10 years to get one bit of housing built. With all that money, and you have maybe less than 17,000 people who are homeless in San Francisco, right? At, at the numbers, where's all that money going? It's mainly going to overhead and administrative costs, right? And they don't even want to look at how are we actually spending the money? Are we spending it appropriately? They just say, okay, if they say we need to spend more, whatever tax we need to do, whatever people need to do, we just need to spend more. So spending more money isn't solving the problem. You actually have to figure out how to manage the money and how the money is being used that you actually have and make sure that that money is directly being used to actually help uh, service to people. The third thing that is a blind spot, San Francisco, the Bay Area itself, can be a, a, uh, a, a place where lots of people from around the country want to come for all kinds of reasons, right? All of our homeless population isn't just homegrown people who just fell into hard times. Sometimes they tend to look at it with that light and they don't understand that there are people who are actually coming out here and are often sent out here from some other states because we seem to have a generous welfare, po welfare policies, right, that are often unlimited, right? that we don't necessarily force people, and maybe maybe the, the women with children to an extent, or for other people, we don't necessarily force people or push people into some kind of compliance and reforming. And when you don't do that, you do, in a way, whether you intend to or not, create a system where there are going to be some people who just say, well, I'll just take my $300 a month and my little food stamps, and I'll be on, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to roam around on the streets and do that. Everybody homeless, it's not mentally ill. It's not a drug addict. I think we overuse that for everybody, right? That doesn't mean there aren't those people out there, but those are some of the blind spots I see. And I think with that kind of thinking, it also helps to encourage an idea. In the, in the idea of, of not, you know, trying to trample on people's rights, you know, being very lazy, fairy progressivism in this way, that they don't really realize that sometimes you're going to need to get a little bit tougher, right? Right? And you're, and you're going to lead a little bit more firm to kind of get some of these things in handle. And you're going to have to understand better that it isn't just spending money. It's how the money is spent that is going to have a better chance of being more successful. So those are the things I think that I've noticed that are blind spots here in the Bay Area. Very, very powerfully put. The one thing I'd pull you up on though and 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 Aaron made a really good kind of he kind of laid out so, some of the ma massive issues uh w with just the geography of san francisco that it's actually relatively small and then as roger has actually said we have various laws which zone again new new developments Aaron also also made that point and then ju just to slightly take task with what you said and this is just like everything is somewhat nuanced is that to say that and yes the city council does spend an inordinate amount of money on the homeless but what it's not doing and what it can't do is to build affordable housing to, so to say that it's just spending money isn't alleviating the problem it's because it can't be alleviated in the most critical and most obvious way. The prevalence of homelessness emerged in San Francisco generally in the late 1970s and 80s. And the, and the factors that led to this are to do with deindustrialization, but it's also the rapid rise in housing prices and the elimination of social welfare programs. The Reagan administration made large cutbacks on affordable and public housing programs such as Section 8. There is a direct link to that. So yes, the city council spend $1 billion, of which you can go just past City Hall and you can see mobile showers for the homeless. You can see all manner of drug centers to help the homeless. And many people say this is contributing because people who have drug problems who aren't in San Francisco, but are let's say in adjacent places then come into the city, that could be true. 
But because of the unique geography and the power of residence associations and various zoning laws, what the city can't do is actually build more affordable housing, which means that working class families can actually remain in the city. And then also there can be smaller residences for, for single people who are not, uh, who are way below the medium income level. So slightly just pull you up on one point there but but david and i thought that you made uh, you made your point and you made it really well but on that note uh, i really i'm going to draw this draw this room to a close if you are a bay area resident please speak to your elected officials and let them know that's one of the jewels in the crown actually is san francisco and we can't allow the city to lose its luster but what we have to do is make sure that working people can afford uh, to live in the area, but also people who find themselves down on their luck can actually have a roof over their head as well. There are many places in the developed world that actually say housing is a basic human right, and I don't see why America can't extend that over to, to many of its citizens as well. I think, everyone, I'm going to call it time there. As I said in my intro, I've got an enormous amount of love for San Francisco, for the Bay Area and for California, but specifically San Francisco. San Francisco basically mended a broken heart for me when I was separated back in 2014. What I had to do was get the hell out of London and go somewhere, anywhere, so I could go and recover and recoup. And I went to somewhere which definitely allowed me to do that. Little did I know that I was going to so fall in love with uh, the Bay Area and uh, California, uh, Northern California anyway, that I'd still be there some six, seven, eight years uh, later. And as I've said, it isn't just the majestic views that if you uh, go up to Knob Hill or you go to Twin Peaks and you just see the whole of this great metropolis in front of you, it was actually the people. And the people have such a can-do spirit, which as a Brit is, is a welcome, welcome change for our, from our somewhat dour cynicism that uh, nothing's ever going to change really. And wh why bother ma making, making a noise? The one thing that I've got being in and around Northern California is not only people saying, good for you, you can do this, but also people saying, how can I help you? And I just hope that San Franciscans can turn that innate sense of wanting to help, wanting to do the right thing into solving this multifactorial problem. I don't think San Francisco is a failed city. I think the article was a, a thought-provoking one. It had national resonance because it spoke to many truths that as San Franciscans, we go about our days going from cafe, coffee shop, do, doing our business, and then we do step over people on the street. It's something which I've done numerous times. The only thing I can say is that each time I do remark on it and I do say this isn't right. San Francisco's got many things going right for it, but the homeless problem, which is just the tip of the spear in terms of the many problems to do with inequality, that, that's only one, but it's the most visible one. And it's the one which actually is really distorting the image of a, a truly wonderful place. If we can sort out wealth inequality, we'll get some people off the street, we'll get everybody off the street, we'll get working people back into the city providing vital services, and we'll start to rebalance the economy. But I'd like to thank everybody who's joined me on stage. Kirsten Brett, uh, Rodrigo Vinagas, Aaron Fisher, my good friend, uh, Roger Mayhem. And thank you, Jay Mack and Irvin Booker and Susan M for coming up on stage. Everyone, this is Mid-Atlantic. Please give the greenhouse a follow we try and have a little space on clubhouse where we can have people from left and from right and we can basically talk in what i call the commons the common space where we hold out the hand of friendship or at least a comedy to people who don't necessarily agree with us i am avowedly uh, left of center but i don't demonize my right-leaning brothers and sisters i try and listen to them try and win them over with the strength of my argument that is what mid-atlantic is all about we look at uk us 
politics because I'm a Brit who is in love with some aspects of this crazy country called America. But you know what? I still say God save the Queen. That's been us, Mid-Atlantic. Please join us on Clubhouse by uh, hitting the little green icon, which means you will be alerted when we go live with these rooms. If you're listening to the podcast recording, why don't you uh, download the Clubhouse app which means that then you can join us for a live recording of the show. You can be in the audience and you can come up and ask a question, pose a question, depending on what the topic is. That's been me, Royfield Brown. Take care, look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.